Morning, everybody. How are we doing? Are you alive? Are you, is anybody day crescendoing already? Are you doing it? Trying to do the front, front end of everything? Let's, let's practice our day crescendo so everybody um, hum this note. Say la, la, la. Ooh, some, there are bass singers in the room. I can hear right there. Let's do that again. La, la, la. Now sing amen. Like that sounded, that is the most Presbyterian thing that has ever happened in this church. <laughs> it was like, we're fine with it, we're not excited, but it, that happened. Come on, sing amen. Amen. Okay, now we're gonna do it day crescendo. We, we clearly need to stand. Everybody stand up, we're gonna sing loud. On three, we're gonna sing a loud, amen, and then we're gonna just get softer and softer. Here we go. One, two, three. Keep singing though, keep singing. Okay, you can be seated. So that's the day crescendo. And the day crescendo is teaching us what to do in the Advent season. So instead of like what everybody else does, which is procrastinate and, you know, build more and more on your task list so that that last week you feel like you're going crazy and you arrive at Christmas Eve just like stressed out and anxious and frazzled and not in any space to have something holy happen to you. We are trying to do the exact opposite. We, we start our season with all kinds of craziness and um, decorating food, shopping, all of our meetings and events and st stuff that goes early in the month. And then about, I don't know, the 15th or so, we are really trying to make a turn toward getting softer, quieter, less busy, and to really day crescendo in every aspect of our life so that toward that last week, man, we're taking time off of work if we have any vacation days. Um, we're not turning on the TV. We're sitting together in silence or talking. We're closing things down so that we can arrive in Christmas Eve in this place of calm expectancy. And it, it all depends on this intentional season of preparation and waiting. And I promise that if you'll do this, you'll have a different relationship with Christmas than you've had in other years. If you'll work that long, slow day crescendo, you'll arrive at Christmas Eve ready to, to share in the wonder of the God who comes for us. You'll, you'll have prepared the way to make, make room for God to show up in the world and in you. Our text for today comes from the book of Isaiah, which actually isn't one book, it's two books for most people. Some people say it's three books. They're combined into one. Book one, if we take it as two, book one is chapters one through 39. Book two is 40 through 66. In fact, scholars were often, will often call them first Isaiah and second Isaiah, if you've ever, ever heard that. It's kind of weird, unless you're from Great Britain and then you say Isaiah, which I don't know why they say that, but that's what they say. Isaiah, and, and it's, it's a big theme of the first book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, what if I said Isaiah the whole time it freaked you out? It's a big theme, um, God's judgment on the people of God. 
for worshiping other gods, for their political alliances, for the way they treat the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger, and for turning their worship into like a big show and then forgetting about justice and, and mercy. And the theme of those first 39 chapters is that God is not okay with this. God has judged this to be an error. And, and God's people kind of run off the rails. And God's response to that was not to like come in with, you know, fire and fury, but really kind of to step back a little bit and just let what happens happen. And in chapter 40, um, there's this dramatic tone, um, dramatic shift in, in the tone of Isaiah. Just a quick side note about dates, because there's some history that can help. The first 39 chapters of first Isaiah were written around 700 BCE, so 700 years before the time of Christ. The second half was written in 540 BCE. And, and it, the second half assumes Israel has already had the calamity. They've already been fallen into to exile. So there's, there's actually this like 160-year gap between first Isaiah and second Isaiah. And what happens in that gap is really important. Chapter 39 ends with this Isaiah's warning to Israel's king that Babylon is coming for them. And Isaiah basically predicts that everything that's about to happen to the, the southern kingdom of Judah. They're going to sack the city, destroy the temple, carry all their people off into exile. And of course, the king completely ignores Isaiah. And so the, the first half, it's like part one of a two-part film series or something, it ends on this very ominous tone. He's been getting warned, he has ignored the warnings, and now Babylon is poised to attack. And, and Isaiah has done everything he can do as a prophet, but nothing has worked. And then it happened, just as he predicted, King Nebuchadnezzar, easily one of the funnest names in the Bible to ever get to say, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, um, came from the northeast and began a blockade of Jerusalem and built these giant earthen works to make a way over the city walls. And they blockaded the city, a blockade that lasted a year and a half. There was no food coming in or out. They had to live in the city off the, the reserves. There was mass starvation and a water shortage and disease in the city. And finally, when Jerusalem was just at its weakest point, Nebuchadnezzar attacked and they won easily. And then his army went to work on Jerusalem. First thing they did is tear down the walls and, and left them in rubble. And then they went to the temple and removed anything of value, anything gold, silver, any jewels, any bronze. They took anything of historic value, all of the writings, all the scrolls, all the artifacts, took it all, boxed it up, shipped it back to Babylon. And then they just meticulously dismantled the temple like stone by stone, took it apart and wrecked it until there was nothing left but a pile of rubble. Then they went through the street, um, house by house, street by street, room by room. Anything of value in the city was cataloged, boxed up, and shipped home. Jewelry, weapons, furnishings, heirlooms, tools, maps, all of it was plundered. They did the same thing then with people, anybody who was of value, educated, smart, wealthy, they were political officials, soldiers, politicians, even just the strong or the beautiful, they were all shipped back to Babylon like possessions. Everybody else was either killed or sold into slavery. And then they burned everything that would burn in the city. 
And all that was left then at the end was to deal with Judah's king and his family. The king's name was Zedekiah. Say, Zedekiah. Also a good name if you're trying to figure out what to name your kids and you're pregnant. Zedekiah is fantastic. <laughs> no, though Nebuchadnezzar would be baller if you did. Nebuchadnezzar would be... <laughs> So Nebuchadnezzar had installed Zedekiah as a puppet king earlier. But he had kind of rebelled, hence the siege. And in the battle, Zedekiah tried to escape with his family, but he got caught. And Nebuchadnezzar took him out to a field right outside Jerusalem and made the king watch while he put all of his sons to death. There's a bunch of them. And then he gouged his eyes out so that the last thing he would ever see would be the death of his whole family. Like they didn't play in the ancient world. And then he didn't even kill him. He took him back to Babylon just to have around, just to make a sport of him. So that's what has gone on during this 160 years between chapters 20, um, 39 to 40 of Isaiah. It's like a significant event. By the time Nebuchadnezzar was finished, the entire culture of Judah and Jerusalem had just been annihilated, and Israel kind of ceased to exist as a nation. For the Jews, there were really only a couple of ways to um, interpret this kind of a calamity. Number one, um, they could say, well, Yahweh was just never really that powerful of a God. It was a weak God, and the stronger Babylonian gods had defeated him. That was one. The, the second was, you could say, Yahweh was still powerful, but God was angry with Israel and had abandoned God's people. And whichever one of those you picked, it was a crisis of faith for the Jewish people. And Isaiah is writing about that crisis. Mostly he's talking about, you know, you think of prophets as like people who predict the future. But mostly he was just talking about things that were happening at the time. And what would happen if they kept going that same direction in, in the near, very near future. But the, um, the people of God have, have also recognized in Isaiah's writings that the sorts of things he was talking about seemed to happen all along throughout history. Like, have you heard, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes? These, these refrains, there's recurring themes that come around like the chorus to a song, these struggles, these problems and crises that humanity has to deal with over and over again. We talked about this last week, and I had a bunch of you get a hold of me and, um, and to talk about one or more of these that are bothering you and add some to the list and just say, I'm so glad you're, you're trying to name this because I'm feeling it too. It's, it's the way that things feel in our society right now, like we're tending toward chaos. Anybody else feel it? Like, I don't know what is going on, but something is off. And, and I just started writing with a couple of my pastor friends, just writing down everything we could think of. Things like rising authoritarianism worldwide, a looming climate crisis, the presence of economic and racial injustice in our society, religious nationalism on the rise, a housing and health care um, cost spiraling out of, out of control, income inequality worsening, wars, political unrest in the world, democracy that seems to be flagging here at home and a culture that we live in just bitterly divided and it's driven by social media and we kind of end up siloed and a little bit at each other's throats a ton of unprocessed trauma still from the the pandemic 
and, and the Trump years, plus this general lack of agreement, just about basic facts of reality, and these powerful ideologies at work fueling you know, outbursts of hatred and rage and even violence. And things, when you start to list it out, things seem pretty bleak and dark right now. And people, I feel like when I sit with people, people are worried about the future to an extent that I haven't seen before in my 35 years of ministry. And so Isaiah it hits a little different these days. We don't have to work so hard to imagine what it's like to wonder where God is, you know, why God isn't moving on our behalf. And we don't have to work to ask questions like, is God real? Is God, has God turned against us? Is God not as powerful as I thought? And these were the, these were the questions the Hebrew people were asking themselves as they walked away from their homes, looking back at Jerusalem in tatters and and on fire with smoke billowing in the distance. And then for a year and a half, there was no Jerusalem. There was no temple, no Sabbath, no law to follow, no festivals to unite them. There's no worship of, Yah of Yahweh, not in the way they, they had known it. They had invented new ways. And it was kind of, in the biblical story, it was kind of a return to the primal chaos when God went dark no prophet spoke God was silent and it was a pain like the Israelites had never experienced before and if it ended the book of Isaiah if it ended in, in chapter 39 that would be the end of Israel's story like they, they would just be like the Hittites or the Amorites or the Philistines just some ancient sounding people that you don't really know anything about, but their name sounds vaguely familiar as they faded into history just like everyone else. But instead, chapter 40 happens. Like suddenly out of nowhere comes this word from God. Yahweh speaks, saying really the last thing that anybody expected God to say from Isaiah 40. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, for every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. And the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And nobody expected it to happen. I mean, Israel, they just thought they were finished. God was silent. And then out of the silence comes this word, comfort. 
Oh, comfort my people. And so they started to dream. They started to hope that maybe their God was not defeated. Not an illusion or a sham, but alive. And maybe the best part was that when God addressed them, God addressed them as my people. You're still my people. God wasn't done with them after, after all. And the words contain this promise. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. This was, this was a prophetic way to talk about social justice. God lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud. God will open up a path, it says, for the people of God to come back to Jerusalem and to a people who had lost everything. This was incredibly good news. And it's weird, I think, that it, that it only came after truly they had lost everything and enough time had passed where they just thought it was permanent. And, and during that time, they began to realize, and it, it kind of sunk in, that their political alliances, their temple, their power structure, their riches, their economy, their king, their army, their claim to be something special in the world, it was just all worthless without Yahweh. People are grass, and grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, it will stand forever. And to their surprise, that word from the Lord was comfort. Comfort my people. It's Isaiah's way of just going, you, you see it, right? Like everything that we had become attached to in this life, it, it will let us down. Like it, all of it will pass away eventually, but the Lord is not like that. The Lord sticks around the lord lasts and so we're gonna if we're gonna make it through times of life that seem bleak and dark if we're worried about our future that we need to our, to somehow um, attach ourselves to the lord in some meaningful way i actually think the the way that isaiah orders his message is not incidental you know, Israel had been annihilated. Their, their dream of a lasting dynasty seemed over. And it's only then that God moves in, moves close with this word of comfort. I mean, for 39 chapters, it's doom and gloom. And then the bottom truly fell out. And, and it was only then, out of the silence, came this word of comfort. It says, um, he's told to speak tenderly. To Jerusalem. It's interesting, this, this word speak tender, tenderly, it's a, the exact same Hebrew phrase used in the story of Joseph um, when he forgave his brothers for selling him into slavery. Remember that story? Jacob had these sons, but his favorite was Joseph, and it made his other brothers crazy, so they attacked him and sold him into slavery, and they thought he was gone. And, and then this famine came, and they were starving, so they went to Egypt for help, and who do they find sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh but Joseph, this brother that they had sold off and they just thought they were doomed. They're like, this is not going to go well. And Joseph is said to speak tenderly to you brothers and reassure them with Genesis 50. And this is the kind of story, he's borrowing this language, Isaiah is, 
Joseph spoke tenderly to his brothers, and here God tells the prophet Isaiah, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell, tell her she, she did her time. The NIV, NIV says, um, New International Version says, um, her hard service has been completed. That Hebrew phrase can also mean warfare, her warfare, her time of warring is done. She's received all she needs in, in terms of like consequences. Um, it says sins here. The, 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 the word sin, we talk about it a lot in Hebrew, is it's more like iniquity, which means crookedness. It just means bent out of shape. Um, often it really is a, a way of talking about injustice, um, like corruption. It's, it's not even typically used about personal transgressions. Iniquity is it's, it's a claim about society as a whole. The way we've organized our common life is crooked, it's corrupt, it's unjust. And so God just took the entire society away and thrust them into the wilderness where they would finally cry out to God. But now a voice cries out to them in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And there's grammar to notice here. Um, it's not a voice crying out in the wilderness, which is how almost probably all of us were universally taught to, to understand this. It's a voice cries out in the wilderness, colon, Hey, all you, all you people living out here in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's this kind of upside down logic. God first exposes their corruption, their iniquity, their injustice. And, and the reason for this was crookedness, right? Mistreatment of those on the margins of society. And this had just become embedded in all of their systems of government and education, of economics, their religious institutions, their laws, their customs. They were broken and crooked and unjust. And that was the reason for their demise. But when it seemed that all was lost, God says, okay, um, you've served, you've done your time. And now enough time has passed where you've kind of let go finally of all of the stuff that was killing you in the first place. And so, and now you're stuck in the wilderness. So in the wilderness, it's time to prepare the way of the Lord. And what the prophets begin to say is that um, humanity has this sort of fundamental problem that we cannot prepare the way of the Lord from a place of power, pride, or privilege. Or maybe we can, but we won't. We'll mess it up. Because that's just what humans do when we get a little bit of power. I mean, this is everywhere. And it's like in everything from Shakespeare to sitcoms. Anytime a character gets too much power or privilege and gets all proud, you just know what's coming. And before it happens, you're like, this is going to go badly. It's just what we do. We start thinking we're somehow special. And, it, and the higher we climb the the tougher the fall when it comes crashing down. And then we find ourselves in the, in the wilderness crying out to God. And what the prophet said is, yeah, that's where God shows up. In the place of hopelessness. I mean, God doesn't really need to show up for the powerful and the privileged and the proud. Like, what do they need God for? They got all these resources at their disposal. God shows up for the ragamuffins in the mess of their lives. 
And, and I think this is meant to inform our, our disposition toward a culture that is clearly in the wilderness right now. Politically, economically, globally, like racially, ecologically, socially. It's wilderness everywhere you turn. For us specifically as Americans, you know, we've just been so powerful for so long. Stanley Hauerwas always says the problem with having so much power is you just get all twitchy and want to use it, you know? You can't, can't resist, can't hold back. And we've lived with so much privilege and a lot of pride. Of course we find ourselves struggling. That's how every story goes. We end up making um, non-ultimate things ultimate. And what Isaiah's claiming is that it's, it's really in God's nature to oppose that situation. Or at least to step back. But it's also, in chapter 40, we learn, in God's nature to comfort and guide and sustain those who have fallen and can't get up. Sorry, I couldn't resist that joke. <laughs> who have fallen and call out to God. The, the powerful, the privileged, they, don't, they just don't call out. Not in any earnest or humble way. I mean, the, the privileged and proud love to call out to God. But what they want is God to bless them and not ruin their gig. You know? And this, this is a path that leads to the wilderness. And we're in the wilderness now. Part of what this means is that the rich, the powerful, the like movers of our culture... They don't want to fix it. They just want to make money off it. Isaiah says our task, if we're in the wilderness, is preparation to prepare the way for something new to break in. And one of the most difficult things about this task is that for those of us who do have privilege, resources, power, we're going to have to let go of a bunch of things to make space for God. We're going to have to let go of a bunch of things that we think we need, but which are actually killing us. You know what I mean? This is as a people, like as a society, and also as persons, individuals. We're going to have to let go of some stuff that we rely on in order to grab hold of God. We're going to have to like leave some crooked paths we've been justifying to find a straight one. Let go of things we've been trusting in instead of trusting in God. Barbara Taylor, she says it this way, we are called to prepare the way for new life in our lives, to make room for it by letting go of our old ways, even, she says, our old loves, as painful as that may sometimes be. It is either that, she says, or prepare ourselves for the news that we have been passed over because there was no room in us. No room should like ring around Christmas. No room in the end. It's one of the things that gets forgotten about the grace of God. Like Bonhoeffer tried to explain it. He called it cheap grace. He said, um, grace is cheap, but um, not free. 
Um, like if, if you want to receive God's grace, you have to make room for it, for, for it. Because God's grace doesn't come in the same form as the stuff we're used to relying on. Like think about that with me. Grace doesn't come in the form of like, like we always say blessings. Grace comes in the, in the form of some kind of brokenness or weakness. I mean, this whole story this time of year is about the God who comes to the world in just the most broken and weak places. Grace doesn't come in the form of like an army or powerful leader or wealth or education or resources or privilege. It comes in weakness. Because the center of this story is this vulnerable refugee kid, literally born in a barn. But we're so trained, you know, we're trained to look for the spectacular and the powerful and the rich and the famous. We want Taylor and Travis, you know. We don't want, you know, the homeless, the broken, the addict. And so it's just really likely that we'll go throughout our lives liable to miss God altogether. Unless, unless we prepare. Like it's totally possible that we'll think we're having encounters with God and we're missing God altogether. We'll swear up and down we've already found God. Unless we prepare. I mean, I think one of the best ways, this is what I do to me, um, to myself, to illustrate this point is that I just try to think of people and places and situations that I'm most tempted to despise or reject or hate. And then I just say, God will probably show up in that, whatever that is. Like, what do you just hate the most? Feeling vulnerable or powerless, looking weak, looking foolish? Who do you despise the most the libs trump fans you know immigrants palestinians israelites people who drive on 435 at the speed limit what is wrong with these people <laughs> right and while i'm going there's that thing where there's the, the like some kind of construction coming up and there's two lanes people before you're not supposed to merge and then there's some guy like a mile and a half out who puts his car in between the two lanes to enforce it so that we can all only get stuck behind him sorry it's a thing for me <laughs> that's just like one benign thing who is it that you can't stand until you can, this is the pro, what the prophet said, until you can welcome them with compassion, you cannot welcome God. And what God usually does is just position things so that we end up having to ask the folks we despise for help if we're going to survive. We call this the wilderness. And it's good for us. I mean, it's hopeless. It feels powerless. It's humiliating and also... Saving, saving us. In the wilderness, this is where we prepare, prepare the way for the Lord by finally dealing with our own power and pride and privilege. 
For Israel, this meant the removal of anything that would stand in their way of complete trust in Yahweh. It meant letting certain things die off, the stuff that was killing them. It meant breaking their allegiances to rival gods, their political alliance, their power games, their prejudices. And for us in, in Advent, um, preparing the way involves a similar move. I will often say that the rival gods of our, of our time are individualism, consumerism, or con, you know, late-stage capitalism, and nationalism, and militarism. We're going to have to find a way to stop worshiping those gods. We trust them like they're sovereign. Our political parties, our politicians, our churches... We're going to have to examine our lives in this season and let God call us into question and figure out where we're drawing our, our life and maybe just for a while intentionally take our focus off ourselves and our, our worries, our grievances, and then turning to the despised other or at least widows and orphans and, and the sick and the alien and to prepare the way the, the Lord involves the removal of anything that, that stands in God's place. And it is, it is bigger than just Advent, you know what I mean? I mean, Advent, we, we focus on it, but this is, this is fundamental to the whole gospel. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, he, he said this one time, cut Christmas out of the Bible and you lose three chapters. Try cutting Advent and you lose half the Old Testament and most of the New. And in our Bible, the way it's organized, it makes this really, really clear. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but all four Gospels start with this text from Isaiah, Matthew 3. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's Matthew. Then comes Mark chapter 1. As it is written by the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. After, that's Matthew, Mark, then comes Luke, chapter 3, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways will be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Don't forget John. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. All four Gospels reach to this little moment in Israel's history, in this language that says, if you are struggling and need help, if you find yourself in, in the wilderness, they all agree with Isaiah. This is where the good news begins. In the wilderness. And the job in that place is preparation. This is where the gospel comes to life. Because what God promises is that the stories don't end in chapter 39. It eventually when the things that are killing us have died off, you know? 
not even hard depths, that God will say, comfort. And if we'll be brave and make straight God's path, if we'll prepare by usually letting go of all the other things that we trust in and making room, genuine room, space in our hearts by letting things go, he will come to us and speak tenderly. And so the question I want to leave us with today is just a simple one derived from, from Isaiah. What do you need to let go of so you can make space for God? So you prepare the way for God to come to you again. What do you trust in? Instead of trusting in God, like what is it for you? Like personality, intellect, 401k, beauty. That's obviously mine. I struggle. <laughs> Righteousness, your good works. <laughs> Vodka. <laughs> I hear you. Your job, your health, your family, your children, your power, prestige, your um, competency, your ability to work super hard. Like, what do you turn to when, when things get really bad? What's the first move? What do you grab first? Isaiah's going, man, you got to be careful with that stuff. And you got to first somehow open up space for God to enter into that stuff. Our resources, our finances. What is it for you? Preparing the way in, in Advent is about trying to organize our life in such a way that we start to really ask these difficult questions during the season. You just go, what is it? What do I reach for? that kind of makes it so I don't need God to show up in the world. That's where, that's where we have to open up space. What do you need to let go of, maybe, to make space for God to come this year? We live in a world that tells us that, um, you know, God is the, the religious, you know, fairy dust we sprinkle on the real stuff. You know, the thing that tells us we're, we're fine. And, and we're also constantly tempted to divide the world up into people that we like who are like us and are therefore good and people we don't like who are not like us and are therefore bad. And then try to kill or change the ones not like us. And, and these are, of course, all lies. Preparing the way is about um, clearing those things off the road so that God can show up. Relinquishing false lords. You know, not trusting in politics for our future not hoping in anything else other than I think God has us. And if we'll look for God, even here in the wilderness, 
God will say, comfort. God will speak tenderly. I mean, when it, sound, it just sounds good. I want it to happen. This is how they felt when Isaiah spoke his words. Every valley is going to be lifted up so the sun can shine. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground will become leveled. The rough places will be, become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And it says, all people shall see it together. And in, in Hebrew, all people means all people. All people. Even the ones I despise. will see it together. This is what we're trying to do in Advent. Let's pray. Just give you a moment just to um, think about your life. If you if you were going to name your wilderness, what would you name it? How would you describe it? Can you can you even tell the truth about it? Or are you too afraid? What are you, in that wilderness, what are you holding on to instead of holding on to God? And what would it cost you to let go? And are you willing to, to pay the price? Are you willing to do it? To let go of what he, whatever you're holding on to, trusting in, in order to make space for God to come to you? Oh God, I pray that we would all prepare the way of the Lord in Advent this year and that you would show up and be real to us. Amen. Let's stand, please. And we're going to receive communion. The ushers are going to release us row by row. You'll be offered a plate of bread and cup. And the way that we do it is we just, you take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. We do this because on his last night with his disciples, this is what Jesus did. They all shared the same cup and, and the bread. He said, symbolically, this is like you just receiving my life into your life and then going out into the world as my hands and feet. He said, whenever you gather, just eat this feast together. Remember what you're made of. And so that's why we do communion each week. And it's also why we set no limits. Anybody can join us. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. But first, let's pray a blessing, if you'll pray with me. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world Feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?